Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and following. We're going to finish the book of 1 Timothy. I mean, holy moly, it's, this is our 12th sermon in the book of 1 Timothy. And what this makes me want to do, of course, is preach through 2 Timothy and then eventually Titus. Matter of fact, I'll quote a scripture from each of them today and probably have you turn and join me so you can read it with your own eyes from 2 Timothy and Titus. Those three books are called the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to younger pastors and giving them advice of how to pastor the church. And so he's writing to Timothy, his son, who he refers to as his true child, like a child in the faith, and giving him advice on here's how you're supposed to live and here's how you're supposed to pastor the church. And by extension, all you church people in Ephesus listening to this, here's how you're supposed to behave. And so you see that even in our passage of Scripture today as we seek to answer the question, what life should I pursue? What life should I pursue? I was trying to remember if I had told you all the story about Chloe, the runaway poodle. Um, We have some neighbors down the street. You know, uh, when, when we first moved in, our block is like, you know, two-tenths of a mile long, and it's got a T on either end, and there's 17 houses. And when we first moved in, a lot of the families, almost all of us, had younger children. And so our kids played together, so we knew each other, right? And we never had like an official block party or anything, but we would have Fourth of July parades, and like whole herds of children would go all the way around the block, and it was really something else. Well, that's been 12-plus years, and so families have moved in and families have moved out. There's one family that's been there the entire time, but I don't know. Maybe they work for the CIA or the FBI. But I mean, they like come in, you know, you see their car coming up because I know their car because, you know, I walk the dog and I pay attention and stuff. And you're like, oh, and then the garage door goes up, the car comes in, the garage door comes down and you don't even see them get out of the vehicle. You're like, are they really in there? Is it remote controlled or is it two mannequins looking like they're in there and something nefarious is going on in their house? They're superheroes or they're spies or something. And so you never see these people. And I've never even seen this man mow his lawn. I don't know when does he mow his lawn. One in the morning? Or does he pay a service to come mow his lawn? And it happens during the day when I'm at work. I don't know. I don't even know their names, okay? So I was just finishing a walk with Hudson a few months ago, getting Hudson back to our house. And I hear, from down the hill behind me, Chloe, Chloe, come back. And I'm like, what in the world? And I'm like, uh, and there's this little black toy poodle mop thing running towards me really fast. And Hudson, of course, is like, hey, it's a dog. Let me go see. And I'm like, no, Hudson. So I grabbed him and I put him on the little cord, you know, at our garage so he can't go anywhere. And I went across our yard because the little black mop thing is running towards me. And, you know, the people that I don't know that I suspect are spies are running after it. Um, they're both wearing business attire. You know, they're very professional, smart-looking people. They do not look like they should be running down the street screaming after a dog. So I thought, I'm going to try to help them here. Maybe the dog's coming towards Hudson. Maybe the dog is coming towards me. So with Hudson behind me about 10 or 15 feet, I got down on my knee to look as small as possible. And since they were calling the dog Chloe, I called the dog Chloe. I said, come here, Chloe, come here, Chloe. And Chloe was actually coming to me. It was about a foot away. And I started to go like this. And Chloe went across the street the other way. Then I had a decision to make. Am I going to run after Chloe like an idiot, like the people I don't know? Or am I just going to now fold my arms and watch them and say, sorry, your dog ran away? So I kind of got into it. I didn't run quite as hysterically as they did because it wasn't my dog. And, you know, then they're, uh, the, the husband's trying to hurt it this way and that way, and the wife is talking to me, and I actually found out her name. 
Um, and, and then I met the husband. We were literally playing dog pinball back and forth across the street between the three of us for about 10 or 15 minutes. And finally, the husband kind of runs like this and herds the dog back into their garage. And then the garage door starts to close, and I thought, Lord Jesus, please let Chloe stay in there. And just before the garage door got closed, out came Chloe. The lady yelled at me, thank you for your help. We'll try to get her. It's okay. And I'm sure the husband came out just shaking his head. I tell you this whole story about pursuing. Obviously, they were pursuing Chloe. Chloe didn't necessarily want to be pursued. Chloe was like, hey, freedom. I'm out of the house. I'm out of the yard. I'm away from the people that work for the CIA or whatever they do, right? And I almost got Chloe, but I didn't. But we think about pursuing something. I have to ask you, when's the last time you ran after something? I mean, you know, let's say you pulled money out of your uh, wallet and wind caught it. Well, you'd probably run after that. Let's say you are a parent of a small child and the small child's about to get into something they shouldn't. You'll run after that. But most of us get to a certain age and if, if we're running, it's only because somebody is chasing us, right? We don't run anymore. And we don't think about that pursuit and that intentionality and that focus to get that thing and whatever it is. But that's the word the Bible uses here that we are supposed to pursue. And we're going to get there from what we're going to pursue in just a moment. So uh, let me give a quick commercial because next week we have something different starting. And that's our scripture story sermon series. And that's going to be something else that you don't want to miss and be here. It are, uh, is four different people from our congregation, Lainey Hegberg, and she's going to about talk about trusting God through the hardest times next week, two weeks from now. Kathy Bateman, uh, with I can do all things through Christ, even forgive, talking about forgiveness in two weeks. Three weeks from now, Miss Jody Stoffer is going to talk about God on her side through all kinds of things she's faced. And then uh, four weeks from now, Mark Pomeroy, how God works all things together for the good. And you're not going to want to miss any of those stories. And as we lay scripture with that and see what God speaks through those things. So you've got your Bible open. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you're able in the honor of reading God's word. And we're going to read uh, uh, verses 11 through 16. We'll skip 17, 18, and 19 because that was in last week's sermon based on the topic. And we'll get verse 20 and 21 to finish the book. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Hold, uh, uh, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, made, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. God, our Father, Paul wrote these words to Timothy 
almost 2,000 years ago, and they still ring true for us today, of how we are to live. And I pray that by your spirit, you'd speak individually to each one of us about the choices we make and how we spend our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, as you're seated, let's put the scripture memory verse for the month up here, because it's actually our second point today, and say it together. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Turning your eyes back to your Bible, in verse 11, it says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So Paul says, flee from all this. What do you think he's referring to? Well, look at context is your first key. Go back up to verse 6 and you see where it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing in and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And then notice verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into the temptation and trap and have many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. That's what you're supposed to flee from here. You're supposed to flee from that love of money and chasing after wealth and material possessions and the stuff that controls you. So we're fleeing from that. But your first point on your outline, a question, asks you what to pursue. What to pursue. There's quite a juxtaposition and quite a contrast here that you're to flee from the one thing, like Chloe, the little black mop, running away from her owners. Uh, Like, you know, I mean, she was set free for the first time in forever. Or you're to pursue something else like the owners pursuing Chloe. And you see that picture of fleeing from all these temptations, all the things of the world that so easily catch our attention of how we look and what we have and the concern for what others think about us based on those things. There are two similar verses that I mentioned I want to turn your attention to. So you've got your Bible. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Now, these books were probably written a few years apart, but still written from Paul to his son in the ministry, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. And look at what it says there. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So three of the six things you're supposed to pursue are the same along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So again, he uses this idea of flee one thing and pursue another. Um, And then while you're turning to the right, go to Titus chapter 2. So Titus follows 2 Timothy in Titus chapter 2, verse 12. Titus 2, 12. We should start in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That we flee those things and we pursue the good things. That the life we live and how we live it. 
Paul reminds Timothy of these things. He reminds Titus of these things. And as we read it today, we're reminded as well. So we have to ask, was this idea of flee and pursue something from a Christian hymn or a poem? Or was it just a saying that Paul used because he struck on it once and he says, that sounds good. And he repeated it to them. What are we supposed to pursue, man of God? Contrast to the material man of the last section. So look at the things you're supposed to pursue. Verse 11 again, it says, pursue righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7.20, you can write that down. Ecclesiastes 7.20, just ECC period, if you don't know how to write Ecclesiastes, because I don't think I could do it without spell check. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23 that Paul writes says it more simply. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. None of us are righteous on our own. And righteousness is the quality of being right or perfect or in God's eyes, in theological terms, sinless. Matthew 23.28 you might write down. It says, uh, Jesus speaking, he says, Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And some of us fall in that category. That we can put on our Sunday clothes and we can put on our Sunday face and we can come into church and we can say, I'm fine, how are you? And act like everything is okay. But secretly, we're filled with all sorts of sinfulness. And what did Paul say, or Jesus say, hypocrisy? And lawlessness. Ephesians 64 6 is the one that you probably know what it says, but you might not know the reference, where it says, Our righteousness is like filthy rags. That what we think is righteous, when we think, Man, I'm really doing good and God's got to be proud of me for this, God says, No, it's still like filthy rags because it's based on your pride, it's based on your performance, it's not based on something I give you. Think about Romans 4, 4 and 5. And this is from the New Living Translation. It says it slightly differently. Listen, Romans 4, 4 and 5. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. You know that. You go to work, you want to get paid. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sins. So we're told to pursue righteousness. But Paul reminds us there in Romans 4, 4 and 5, that we don't get righteousness on our own. It's not because of our good works that we are counted righteousness, but it is a gift from God. So actually what we're doing, what we're encouraged to do is to pursue a gift from God. One more scripture about righteousness. Proverbs 21, 21. That's easy to remember. Proverbs 21, 21. Write that down. It says, whoever pursues righteousness... And kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. When you pursue a life of righteousness and kindness, when you pursue God giving you the righteousness that you cannot get on your own, that He imparts to you, you're going to be given righteousness. But not only that, you'll be given life, and not only regular life, but eternal life and honor. You will have a different sort of character quality because you're pursuing God who imparts to you a character quality that is otherworldly and supernatural and righteous. Look at that next word there, godliness. Can you get to be godly on your own? You can fake it. 
You can put on your Sunday face. You can act godly by your self-discipline and your self-control. You can. But on your own, you can't. I had to smile last night when at a 50, 50th wedding anniversary celebration for Mr. Donnie and Miss Kathy Beverly. And Mr. Donnie's sitting over here. Miss Kathy, uh, God bless her, is serving in the nursery this morning. I said, wow, you're up late partying last night and you're here this morning for church. I'm teasing. They probably weren't up that late partying. But these uh, three beautiful flower arrangements were there for that, and so that's why we have those today in honor of Kathy and Donnie's 50th wedding anniversary. But as I'm there with other guests, their son-in-law is uh, making a speech about them and their character, and he quotes this very next scripture I want to quote for you. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5-7. through 7. Write that down, 2 Peter 1, 5-7. through 7. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection or brotherly love, and brotherly love with love, or agape love, God's love. And he saw that as a manner in which he observed his uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law loving one another and the character qualities they had that they showed to others. And he saw that in his wife and the rest of their family. And I would agree. It's easy to see that in Donnie. Go on with your life. But all of us are supposed to pursue that sort of godliness. Go on with your list. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, then faith and love. Those first two virtues, and then we have two objects. A virtue is something of high moral standard or moral excellence. And now we have uh, these ideas of pursuing love. And remember, the love he's talking about here is the love I define as agape love, as otherish. It's God-powered. You can't do it on your own. It's other-focused. It's not about you. And it's self-sacrificing. It's giving to others. Outside of, through, from your own need. And then he says there, uh, pursue endurance and gentleness. These two concluding virtues link together two different character qualities. This really demonstrates that there's strength and, I don't know, I'll use the word stickability or stick where he says endurance and gentleness. Endurance is an admirable character quality, isn't it? The person who shows up day after day and does what they're supposed to do. And no matter what they face, does what they're supposed to do. And then you add to that the character quality of gentleness. When they're challenged, they respond in gentleness. When it gets difficult, they respond in gentleness. Rather than getting all upset, freaking out, having a moment. That this is the life we're supposed to pursue. But we cannot get it On our own. So my question is, can you pursue anything without intent? Can you pursue anything without action? I mean, the word pursue means you've got to do something. It's implied, right? And what the scripture indicates for us, it's got to be continued pursuit because there's endurance in it. Pursue means that you're following something. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we ask what to pursue is, when I consider my life right now, what am I pursuing? What does my life look like I'm pursuing? Does it look to God and others like I'm running feverishly after the black mop dog who can't decide which way she's going? Or is there something about my life that demonstrates consistency and endurance and love 
and godliness. And I'm pursuing a relationship with God that affects every other area of my life so that I behave in such a way that others look at me and say, man, that gal's really, there's something about her. That guy, you know, his, his character, I don't know what it is. And they see those indicators in our lives of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So let's move on to your second point, your second scripture verse there. In verse 12, it says, We're to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life, to which we're called when we made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight literally, uh, or the word there, you're going to recognize it because we have an English word that sounds very similar. The Greek word is this, agonizo. Agonizo. Think about that kind of fight. Fighting to the point that you're in agony. Fighting to the point that you are not going to give up. Fighting to the point that you're spending the last ounce of energy and you're leaving it all on the field. And no matter what, you're going to try to get that goal. That's what Paul says. And that's your second question on your outline. Your second question is, why to fight? Why to fight? And, and, and the why is implied there. Look at what he says. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession. The why is because you're fighting because you are saved. Not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. The Greek phrase there where it says take hold of eternal life is literally a Action that is complete. It's a one-time event. And so it's not that you're continuing to fight and continuing to take hold of because you might lose your salvation. What he's saying is because you were saved in the past, because you made a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you will continue to fight to live a life that pursues godliness and righteousness and do away with your own sinfulness. And you would have to agree with me, probably. That's a fight, right? That there's that temptation to live life my way rather than God's way. And I've got to fight against that and resist that. And I've got to continually surrender to God and ask Him to fill me that I might not live that way. He says, I remind you that good confession you made in the presence of many witnesses. He's not trying to put it on him, I don't think. He's trying to encourage him. He's trying to remind him that you are a part of a church family and there are other believers in Jesus who know you and love you and will support you and they will help you to fight the good fight and they will help you to pursue a relationship with Jesus if you'll let them. Friends, this is a good time to give a commercial for why you need to be involved in church. A good time to give a commercial for why you need to be involved in a Sunday school class. For why you need to be involved maybe even in a smaller group than a Sunday school class. And which you can get honest with people, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, life on life, about what's going on in your life and what's your stuff that you need encouragement for, that you need counseling for, that you need accountability for. So that there are others who love you, who are in the same fight to pursue Jesus and resist the evil one in temptation, they can stand with you and say, I'm going to pray for you in this. I'm going to support you in this. I'm going to encourage you in this. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the good confession you made in the presence of many witnesses. Being together with the body of believers. 
It takes investment. It takes intentionality. You can't just be a consumer and leave. I mean, you can go to a church and show up on a Sunday morning and watch the show and sing the songs and listen to the preacher and say, oh, that was good or that was bad or whatever else you want to say about the sermon and then go home and have no investment whatsoever. You can do that. And hopefully a, a little good will rub off on you. You know, and in your mind you're thinking, well, score one for me. God's going to thank me because I showed up at church today. Do you see that in the Bible? No. What you see in the Bible is God calling us to be committed, not just to Him, but to one another. And in such a way that we love one another and support one another, even when, especially when life gets hard that we bear our burdens to one another in order that we might bear burdens for one another and that we care for one another. If there's one thing I could say I would wish that we would see more of in our church, that would be it. That we would take off our Sunday face, at least with some people, be honest about what's going on in our life, and then love and encourage one another and support one another. And then we fight for one another. So we're supposed to pursue godly virtue. We're supposed to fight for eternal life with one another. And then our third question this morning is, what do we do? Well, I know the other things are doing as well, but I couldn't come up with a better way to summarize this. But look at verse 13 and 14. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything in Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made a good confession. So Paul's now using Jesus' confession before Pilate as an example for Timothy, why he needs to keep his confession. And notice then the last phrase, it says, I charge you. Your uh, Bible might put, I charge you first. The NIV translates it slightly different. Verse 14, to keep this command without spot or blame while appearing to our Lord until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what are you supposed to do? The answer to what are you supposed to do is to keep the command, i.e. to live a godly life, to pursue godliness, that that's what you're supposed to do until Jesus comes back. I love that phrase in verse 14. To keep this command without spot or blame. The King James says it in a cool way. It's old school King James, right? 1611 it was written. It says, That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rebuke is a sharp disapproval. Criticism. Could you live your life in such a way that you are unrebukable? That there's nobody that could say to you or of you, man, that guy really messed up, or that lady, woo, she's got some sort of nerve. That you live your life in such a way, pursuing God, asking Him to live through you, that you're unrebukable. That you're following Him and keeping His commands. We're to pursue godliness Timothy and us, that's the life we should pursue. And we're to fight in order to live a godly life because it's not going to come easy. And then we're to keep the command that he's given us. Let's move on to your fourth point. Your fourth point is who to honor. Who to honor in verse 15 and 16. 
Who to honor? It says, which God, so he's finishing the phrase from before, will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one can see or, or has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So if you pick up the end of verse 14, it's until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, until Christ returns to take us to heaven, those of us who have believed in him while we're alive. So until that time, we're supposed to live a life that does what? Which God will bring about to honor Him, to pursue Him. And then He he does this kind of doxological excursus on who God is and describes with many phrases in a Pauline sort of way, piling one on top of the other, who God is and the character that He has, which God will bring about in His own time. So Jesus is going to come back when God's ready. Our scripture, or excuse me, our uh, um, Sunday school lesson today in my class at least deals with 2 Peter 3 9, that God's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness to be, not wanting any to perish, but wanting everyone to have eternal life. There is a day and time coming when Christ will return. And how do you know who's uh, going to be saved? Well, those that have made a decision before that day, that's the ones that will be saved eternally and go to heaven. But come back to our scripture here. As he summarizes who God is, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, that no one has seen him, no one can see him. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you're going to have to go a few pages to your right or just click over in your app. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 53 and 54, when it talks about the immortal and the mortal, it says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. So our perishable bodies in our resurrection to heaven will get a resurrection body, a different sort of body that is imperishable. In other words, it can't die, it's eternal It won't get sick. It's eternal. It won't have any issues because it's made immortal. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That there will be a day when all of us who have trusted Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord will get rid of the bodies that we have that ache and hurt and have all sorts of issues and are fallible and can die to be given a body that is infallible, immortal, and will not die. And it says in verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For this life, death hurts. I know there's times when somebody suffers so long up until the point they die, that you're ready for them to go. That as a family member, as a loved one, you see that it is more merciful for them to pass than for them to remain. But it hurts for them to pass, doesn't it? And death has a sting to it. And death seems as though it has won because it took our loved one from us. But what Paul is reminding us of in 1 Corinthians 15 
is that eternally death doesn't have that sting. And death doesn't have that victory. Because for the believer in Jesus, there is an eternity in which this body of ours that wears out, the body of ours that gets old, is going to be replaced with one that never wears out and doesn't get sick and doesn't get tired and will never die as we get a new resurrection body that is immortal and imperishable. And we see God for who He is. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, so you're in 1 Corinthians, swing a few pages to your left. 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 1. This is what it says, and I'll actually start in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Verse 20. Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God has a power, a resurrection power, that He demonstrated in Christ that will come to fruition in all of us when all who have trusted Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord will go to heaven. And when we answer the question, who to honor, we're to honor God, the immortal, the eternal, the all-powerful, because He has loved us and He has saved us and He calls us unto Himself. So your fifth question this morning, your fifth question back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 is how to live. How to live. Most of us don't think much about how to live. We just live, right? I mean, there are times when we think about, I need to do things differently. And we concentrate on budgeting our money or managing our calories or getting some exercise or doing the physical therapy and taking the medicine that's been prescribed to us by medical professionals. There's times when some crisis situation presents for us the need to apply more discipline to our lives. But most of the time we just live life. And if we're not careful in living life, inertia sets in and gravity takes over and we just kind of become something that we didn't want to become. And we're a little bit thoughtless in the way we conduct ourselves and we're not focused in the way we spend our time and the way we invest our energy. We've got to guard against those things because we've been told to pursue a life of righteousness and godliness, and faith, and love, these amazing Christian virtues. We've been told to fight for that sort of life as we resist the life that is easy. We've been told to keep these commands without rebuke until the time that Jesus comes back. But how do we do, and how do we do it? Look at verse 20. So Paul gets personal again, and he uses his Son's name, his son in the ministry, Timothy. So all these other things were written to Timothy, but he calls him by name again. Timothy, guard what has been 
entrusted to your care. Psalm 56.4, write down Psalm 56.4. says, In God whose words I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Paul said to Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. And the psalmist says, it's in God that I trust. Proverbs 29.25, write down that reference as well. Proverbs 29.25 says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I want to paint this picture for you of how we're supposed to live is trusting God to guard our lives, not just for eternity, but in how we live our life now. One more psalm for you, Psalm 9, verse 10. Psalm 9, verse 10. It says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For those who know your name put their trust in you. It's God we trust in. And when we seek to answer the question how to live, one part of that answer is to trust in God, not only for our eternal life, but also for abundant life and how we live our life day to day. He says, guard what's been entrusted to your care. And then he tells him something else to do. Turn away from godless chatter and from opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. And then verse 21 defines that a little further, which some has professed and in so doing so have wandered far from the faith. If you've been here with us, you've heard that the church at Ephesus had some folks that were trying to stir up trouble in the church. And some element of it had to do with what we would call a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Other element of it might have been something from the Judaizers, those that said you needed to keep uh, the Jewish laws plus add Jesus to them. And another element of it, had to be that you needed some sort of special knowledge and it had to do with all sorts of genealogies and stuff like that. And so they were taking Jesus plus and the Bible plus. And anytime you take Jesus plus or the Bible plus, you're in trouble. That's how you get into heresy. And so Paul's warning him one last time, turn away from all that heresy. Turn away from everything that seeks to add to the message and the gospel I preach to you and focus on trusting God alone. The ESV says it this way. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And the ESV even puts knowledge in quotes. You don't see that very often in a Bible translation when it's not quoting somebody. But the emphasis of the Greek phrase there was such that the translators who wrote the English Standard Version decided to put the quotes above it to say it's not really knowledge. It's falsely called knowledge. So avoid that irreverent, irreverent babble. Avoid the contradictions and focus on your life with God. So our question this morning, the title of our sermon is what life should I pursue? We've been reminded that we need to guard the trust. And how should we guard it? How should we pursue? How should we fight? How should we keep ourselves in the commands or keep the commands that we've been given? And how 
should we live? I've got one final scripture for you, and I want you to turn with me. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 12. As I was studying this passage of scripture, I remembered from my daily Bible reading sometime last year being struck by this passage of scripture, and I had to go find it. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21. It says in my NIV, do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. Seems a little redundant. Don't turn away after useless idols because they're useless. But in the middle, there's two qualifying phrases. That they can do you no good. And they can't rescue you. Well, go back and look at the context. It's Samuel, the prophet, who had spoken to Israel on behalf of God for decades. This is his farewell speech. And one of his summary lines towards the end of his speech to God's people, Israel, was do not turn away after useless idols, for they can do you no good. They lived in a place in which all the other tribes and peoples had idols that they pursued and worshipped. Listen to how it says it in the ESV. It says, and do not turn uh, aside after empty things. They cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Empty, useless idols. When we consider the question of what to pursue and how to live, and the intentionality with which we spend our lives. That's our final warning, friends. What are we pursuing that's empty and useless? And how are we spending the one and only life we have? Let's pray together.